our scripture reading is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of evil, of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Emily. Do I need to put this back up here, maybe? Good morning. My name is Ben. I'm an elder here at Valley Hope, if you don't know me. Our lead pastor, Anthony, is away with his family on some much-deserved time away now that school is out and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and today, uh, I wanted to, to highlight again that we would love for people to serve by reading the Word of the Lord uh, on Sunday mornings. If that's something that you're interested in doing, you've done before, uh, maybe you don't really want to do it, but you're willing to do it, we would love to, to have people serve in that way. So thanks for doing that, Emily. Um, let me pray for us before I get started. Father, we thank you that you have called us here as your people. We thank you that you have given us your word to instruct our hearts and our minds. We ask now that you would uh, move in a spirit of unity here, that you would uh, teach us all individually and collectively the truth that you would have us to see uh, in this passage that we're looking at today. We pray that all of these things, our thoughts, my words, um, and our worship to you, Father, would be glorifying to the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, as we continue this series through the letters of, uh, of Paul to the church in Thessalonica, um, I'm going to give you a little bit of a recap, because last week we had a guest speaker for Pentecost Sunday, um, and unlike Netflix, you can't skip the recap, so just hang in there. Um, probably not too long ago, maybe a few months before Paul pens this letter, 
Um, he had written the first letter, 1 Thessalonians, to the believers there. We know that, uh, that Paul had to leave them, perhaps urgently, perhaps due to persecution. We know that he was unable to get back to them uh, for reasons that we don't exactly know, possibly, again, persecution. Um, but we see, or if you remember, that he's, he's speaking very affectionately about them. He's writing very affectionately to them. He wants to get back to them. He wants to give them further instruction and comfort in the Lord. Um, he knew that they were suffering. Um, some of that suffering was direct, was even malicious. Some of it was stuff that you and I might be more comfortable or familiar with, which is trying to figure out how to navigate a culture that seems kind of opposed to our new faith, our new beliefs that correspond to that faith. Uh, so Paul had received news about them um, and so reminded them of things like refraining from sexual immorality that was so ubiquitous in their culture. Uh, does that sound familiar? He, uh, he reminds them of what a life lived in God looks like, what death in Christ looks like, that it's heartbreaking, but that it's framed by resurrection. He teaches them again about uh, a life lived by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to be encouraging and comforting and hardworking, marked by charity and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So there's some back and forth communication happening here between Paul and the church in Thessalonica. Uh, specifically, uh, the suffering of the Thessalonians is a continued theme. Uh, we'll see here also a continued theme is Paul feels like he needs to tell them a little bit more about what exactly is happening when Jesus returns. He talked to them a little bit in the first letter about that. And he gives them a, a pretty typical greeting, right? If you've read Paul's letters, especially multiple times, you have, like me, at least once, maybe a bunch of times, been sort of tempted to kind of skip or skim over those first few verses, right? Because they all seem the same. He's always saying greetings to you and, and so on. Uh, first, I would recommend not skipping over verses when you're reading your Bible. I know that there are uh, some that are less comfortable we might look at some of those today. I know there are some that are just less interesting. Sometimes it seems like there are whole books that are less interesting. Um, I would encourage you, don't skip those. I'll give you maybe one example uh, or one reason why not to do that. Um, if you look here at, if you have your Bible in front of you, or just take my word for it maybe, um, there's, there's a really subtle difference in the first letter Paul directs them and talks to them and God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in 2 Thessalonians, he says, God, our Father. He says both of those things twice. Now, it is possible, I suppose, that Paul's just writing a different letter and he didn't really mean anything by it because both of those are, are right. God is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and God is our Father. Um, but what some commentators have pointed out, I think rightly, is that he's focusing the shift a little bit, not a shift, he's focusing on a, a little bit different thing. Uh, he has been teaching them, God is the Father of Jesus, 
God the Father of Jesus, because they need to know and understand the divinity of Jesus as their Savior. He's now, I think, trying to remind them, you also are sons and daughters of God. So Paul has moved from emphasizing one to also, not instead of, also emphasizing the other. After reminding the church that they are indeed part of God's family now, he moves to these familiar themes in these two letters of thanksgiving and faith and love. Uh, That is, having been given faith, love is is allowed to kind of sprout out a selfless, serving, community-oriented love that that wasn't there before. So why is that worthy of thanksgiving and praise? Because it wasn't there before. Uh, Just a year or two years, maybe a few years at most, these specific people that Paul is writing to would not have willingly endured suffering. They would not have uh, willingly laid down their lives in service to one another, certainly even if they would have for maybe a friend or a family member, they certainly wouldn't have done it in the name of Jesus. So this is a new thing that did not exist before. Why? Why did it not exist? Because the norm, the easy thing for us, is when something's causing pain or discomfort, to what? To avoid it, to alleviate it, to run from it, especially if it were in the form of persecution. But Paul says that This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What is it? What is the this? What is it that's evidence of the righteous judgment of God? It is the steadfastness and faith that the church is enduring in the midst of difficulty. Paul is telling them, here is one way that you know God is the ultimate judge. One way that you know you don't have to figure everything out. One way you, don't know, you know that you don't have to find or figure out perfect justice on your own. It's that your faith is holding fast amidst difficulties. So that, to me, it seems a little bit confusing. Seems like there's a shift there. Um, so the question might be, so my faith, faith is holding fast in the midst of difficulties, in the middle of the storm, so to speak, and, and that is evidence of the righteous judgment of God? Yes, it is. Um, it is at, at least this, uh, that your faith, the faith of the Thessalonians, any people given the gift of faith, can look at this steadfastness this different approach to suffering and understand that a God who would give them such an experience or such a perspective, such a framework for viewing things would surely not neglect to make all things right. That is, he would surely not neglect to exercise his blameless and his good judgment. Okay, so steadfast faith, thanksgiving for it, wasn't always the case, but it is now. In describing the growth of their faith and love, the Greek terminology that Paul uses here is is agricultural types of terms. He's talking about 
things in a way that would be expressive of plants or of trees, of irrigation, of this growth. And so again, we go back and see that in 1 Thessalonians, we talked about how faith is like a seed that takes root. And when it has done that, the plant grows forth. The plant is kind of like love. And all of the fruits that come with that are able to grow. God's persistent work in our lives, his leading us in the way of his son, Jesus. That's what's happening when we're suffering. It's not because I have been strong or persistent, but because God has. So, so when we're suffering, we look and we say, wait a minute, brother, my sister, we're walking in the way of Jesus. That's what we're doing because of this faith and love that we've been given. Let me pick just a few ways that we can, we can see how that's different than what the world would say about suffering. Um, unlike modernism, which might hold that science is ultimate truth, you know, think about a popular name or person like a Richard Dawkins. Um, we don't believe that suffering is just kind of, that's the odds that you were dealt because there's a universe of blind physical forces and that stinks. I'm sorry. You're just like, you're the one that it happened to. Uh, rather, we say that there is great purpose in our suffering, just as there was a great purpose in the suffering of Christ. Unlike uh, a Buddhism, which seems to be pretty popular in our culture, certainly is popular in the Asheville area, though it seems to also be poorly practiced by people who claim it. Um, we're not looking to avoid or get away from suffering by just quenching all of our desires. Uh, rather, what we would find is that in desiring good and true things, we might actually suffer more. A last example I'll give is that in our current uh, culture, which is obsessed with individualism and individualistic happiness, um, which would have us negatively label and fight off and call oppressive anything that we just aren't enjoying, um, rather, never mind anything that's persecuting us. Rather than that, in Christ, we can see that we can sit down and rest in the midst of suffering and taste of a hope that is to come. So if you're looking at this, this passage, you may be remembering back to the first letter. You're like, okay, that's great. Faith, hope, love, steadfastness, that, that all sounds good. Are you trying to avoid these couple verses here with the hellfire and damnation? I'm not. Um, what he's talking about next, flaming fire, inflicting punishment, eternal destruction, I don't want to think about those things. I don't really want to talk about those things. Um, but I think that it is worth noting what he's saying here. Uh, and there are three words that I would point out to you there. Those are that God considers it. God considers it. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict and to inflict vengeance. Okay, so this is a good reminder for us as we study any of Scripture. 
It's not up to me. It's not up to you, what we think, what we feel. We don't get to decide if hell is a real thing or not. We can talk about what it might look like. Thousands of people have done that and written really well on it. Uh, But what we can know is that wherever we arrive at what hell we think hell might actually be like, what it actually might look like, it's probably a lot worse than that. So this isn't something that you and I get to make a choice on. But here Paul gives us reasons. He gives us reasons, so to speak, as to why God considers it just to do things like repay with affliction and inflict vengeance. The first is that those who suffer these things are those who do not know God. In other words, and in accordance with with passages like Romans 1, like Isaiah 36, those who are judged at that time will possess no excuse for the charge that they do not know God, since they suppress the truth of God by their unrighteousness, by their stubborn unbelief, and by their hardened idolatry. They will have have chosen to be opposed to God. Second, those who are judged uh, will be those who heard but rejected the gospel. Paul says here, those who do not obey the gospel. Paul here is likely reminding us that yes, the gospel is a loving and tender invitation, but part of the gospel is also repentance, obedience, See, it is by their own stubbornness toward the evident God and the refusal of the way of forgiveness that they are judged. C.S. Lewis uh, writes in um, The Problem of Pain uh, that the long-run answer to all of those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question, and that is, what are you asking God to do? Are you asking him to look over their past, to forgive them their sins, to give them a fresh start. And he has done so. He has done so on the cross. He has done so at Calvary. Are you asking him to forgive those who would be judged? But they will not let themselves be forgiven. This is, these are hard truths. They don't feel good for us to read, to think about, for me to talk about. What we do see here is that that relatively little of this passage we're looking at today is spent on hell and on condemnation. Because the scope of hell and the effect of hell are so small compared to the scope and the effect of heaven. I'll quote Lewis again. He writes, C.S. Lewis, if you don't know, writes lots on heaven and hell, is not without uh, poor judgments maybe, or um, without his faults, but he gives us lots of good imagery, lots of good ideas. In here, the, the narrator, this guy goes to heaven, he finds there a character named, that he calls his teacher, and the teacher says to his narrator, all hell is smaller than one pebble of your earthly world, but it is smaller than one atom of the, this world, the real world, that is heaven. He says, look at yon butterfly. If it swallowed all of hell, hell would not be big enough to do it any harm or to have any taste. 
So the scope and the effects of heaven are so much smaller compared to the scope and the effects. Did I say heaven? Here, somebody was going to catch me there. <laughs> you get the point. So the, the focus on this passage is not actually hell. Um, it is perhaps enough to say that hell is real, um, that it's necessary because God is just and holy, um, and that it is to some degree chosen by those who would re uh, reject the Father's invitation in Jesus Christ, choosing instead themselves. Um, and though these verses, these, term, these terms really stick out and are kind of hard to move past to see, well, what a, what's the full scope of what he's saying here? Uh, I think that what, what we're meant to see here is that it is not that we have earth now and sometime later we have either heaven or hell. It is rather that God has been and is forever working to reconcile heaven and earth from the destructive forces of hell. The word here invites us not to look at our suffering, but to look on our relief, which is the glory of Jesus Christ present with us. The revealing of the sovereign Lord who has been sovereign all of this time to all of creation. We will not in that moment say, yes, I was right. I was right while I was on earth. Like, man, it was, I got heaven. I'm so glad. Rather, we will say, thank you, Jesus. And we will raise our hands with the saints and say, worthy is the lamb. So it is this leap, this leap in vision. It is this very conscious remembering of what is to come that prepares us in our suffering, in looking at the suffering of others for the glory that is to be revealed. It's a leap in vision. It is knowing what the end result is. Not more suffering, not death, not hell, but sharing in the full life and glory of Jesus Christ. And so we go back to what Paul said in verse 2 when he wrote, Our Father. If you know Jesus, you're a co-heir. You're a son or a daughter of God himself. So we're not left wondering what our inheritance is. We're not even left wondering like how many jewels are in our crown or how big our mansion is in glory or any of these things that are just easier for our minds to think about easier maybe for us to, to think about striving for. Rather, as his children, we will together with Jesus inherit and live in the full glory of God. When, when World War II was winding down, General MacArthur uh, was to sign off on Japan's surrender, and he invited a number of people to, to come with him Two people in particular that he asked to stand with him as he signed off on Japan's surrender. Uh, those were British General Arthur E. Percival and American General Jonathan M. Wainwright. Several years earlier, as the Japanese were threatening not only those men's lives, but to, de to destroy it, to wipe out all of the things around them in their respective posts in, uh, in Singapore and the Philippines. They, they had to give him up. 
and they spent the rest of the war uh, in, in, uh, imprisoned by the Japanese. Uh, noticeably weakened and aged after just a few years uh, when they were finally rescued. So MacArthur asked them to stand with him as he signs to accept Japan's surrender. And then he signed again and again and again and again. Five times in all, MacArthur would sign with five different pens. He would hold two of them for the respective U.S. academies in West Point and Annapolis. He would keep one pen for himself, and he would hand one pen to Generals uh, Percival and Wainwright, still standing somewhat gaunt, certainly not fully recovered from their time in prison. What a great story, uh, and what a pale story in comparison to what we have been invited in to share in the glory of Jesus. Neither of these men had given in to the side of the enemy, but had served with dignity. They had brought no discredit to their side. Like Percival and Wainwright, like the Thessalonian church, you and I either have or most certainly will find ourselves suffering but our suffering is only a part of something larger. But like these men, you and I have also been invited to share in glory. And look, I'm not trying to trivialize suffering. I'm not saying, you know, buckle up, buttercup. I'm saying the word of God here invites you to see a much bigger and also a much more detailed picture. Jesus invites you to stand with him in a freedom of eternal magnitude. And he does not offer you a memento. He does not offer you simply memories. You and I are without merit in our suffering if it were not that Jesus signed once for you in his own blood to determine forever that you are his. When we consider suffering, when we consider things like vengeance, eternal punishment, we are not called to explain it away, to convince ourselves or someone else that this is just a misguided doctrine. When we see those who commit heinous crimes against God and man, you know, those, those things that you really just mostly hear about in the news, and you're like, that might deserve damnation, actually. That's, that's awful. We're not to throw down condemnation on the heads of those any more than we are to explain it away. Instead, we are to, to look at those, to raise our hands and say, I am one of those. I am one of those undeserving. I am one of those that was seemingly beyond grace. When I was trapped by pornography, when I was stoned every hour of the day for years, when I was, I'm talking about me now, when I was nearly run out of insanity, when I was a terrible husband, when I was in the depths of depression, on the edge of perhaps ending my own life, 
You all have those lists too, whatever they are. That's what we're to do. We're to look at those who might be in threat of this damnation that we would rather not be real and say, I'm one of those. I was one of those. Not just doomed to suffer in prison, but in fact, dead and buried. But like Lazarus, Jesus called us out from the grave, fresh from the grave, surely stinking of decay. Therefore, rather than wallow in our self-pity, rather than moving in every way we can away from suffering, rather than explaining away everyone else's potential suffering, we're called to run to them. When we look at those who seem a little bit more like us, who seem not so bad, who would cause us to think, Surely that can't be right. They're, they're not so much different than me. When we look at those who commit atrocities that we imagine ourselves incapable of, we run to both of those groups, to everyone, to tell them how good Jesus is. Paul says here, because our testimony to you was believed, This is what he's encouraging them to do. Encourage one another, but also go out. Spread the good news of Jesus. You and I have not been brought to life simply for our own enjoyment, but to bear testimony to the great love of God in Jesus Christ. Paul says here that it is he who makes us worthy of such a calling fulfilling in us every resolve for good work and every work of faith. Calvin will say it this way. He'll say that we are confirmed in the hope of eternal life while we fight for it. So if you're sitting here today and you're thinking that your suffering is unjust, whatever it looks like, that it might be more than you can bear, you're right probably is unjust. It's certainly more than you can bear. But the God of all creation is inviting you again. Seems like it happens over and over again, doesn't it? He's inviting you again to put your hope and trust in him. Because not only will he come and make up for that wrong that has been done to you, but he will share with you the fullness of his glory when Jesus is unveiled to all. If you're hearing this, if you're reading this text and find it difficult to not get stuck on these hard words of destruction and fire and punishment, Jesus calls your gaze to move from that to him. To look at him who not only broke into prison and paid your penalty of death, but in fact descended to hell and defeated those powers. He defeated those powers for you and he defeated those powers for those that you might see and worry are in danger of them also. He has many more that he would add to his number.
if you find yourself sitting here today or at any moment in the future dwelling on all the ways that you're undeserving of this, all of the ways that you could never attain such a love, thinking maybe a harsh judgment is what I deserve. And in some way, maybe that's what I'm trying to put on myself is a harsh judgment because I think that's what I deserve. You're right. It is what you deserve. It is what I deserve. But rather, God would invite you to feel the loving arms of the Father wrapped around you, always ready and willing to embrace you, no matter what kind of circles your minds run in, no matter that you, like me, have done more evil than we could ever say. We are not meant as children of God to live in fear, to live in uncertainty, as if we had no view of the future. The end of this passage, right after he talks about this tough stuff, Paul is reminding them, this is your future. This is your hope. That Christ would be revealed and that you would fully dwell in his glory forever. This is a picture of hope. In Jesus, in Jesus, judgment has been rendered. And rather than casting you away, the Father has said once again, my son, my daughter, come close to me. Let me pray for us. Father, you, you are good. And we confess to you today that when we say that, when we read it, we don't really have a great concept of, of what goodness is, of how good you really are. But we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for giving us your son, Jesus for calling us your sons and daughters and giving us your Holy Spirit that we might begin to understand your goodness, that we might begin to see your great love for us. We ask, Father, that you would shape that in us, that you would shape us individually and collectively to go out from here, not preaching um, what sounds like hate, but preaching hope, that you would help us to be truly loving in the sense that only you could make us loving. We thank you that we can trust that this is what you're doing and that this is what you will do because you have already done so much for us, Father. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.